good to see you all. Thanks for coming out today. Uh, happy Easter to you all. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. I'm going to pray, and uh, then we're going we're gonna to get through this this morning. Good, again, it's good to see you all. Father, we would ask that these would be a few moments in which we would, on an Easter morning, be able to think really clearly about what we believe in many, many different ways. And so I, I just ask that you would show up and be with us this morning. You would allow us to do just that, to think clearly. And so we commit these moments to you and just ask that you would be present here with us for we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when you begin to think about it, there, there are very, very few things in life that you can do that are not, to some degree, augmented with faith. Uh, declaring a major in school, um, certainly getting married, having children, purchasing a home. All of those things require you to use assumptions that you have that oftentimes have, have not been very well thought out. They're, they're like chips on a motherboard that you don't know where they came from, you don't know who made them, but nonetheless they're functioning in a way that they're causing you to believe that you're going to be able to make all 60 of those payments for your car, that you're going to be able to buy this house and uphold your obligation to, to the banks, to make promises that you will love always in a marriage. See, all of those are assumptions that we make. The majority of us, I think, navigate those, <clears throat> those situations without really thinking what it is that causes us to make those assumptions. Um, this morning, what I want to show you is that when you think about the resurrection of Jesus, you can't actually think about it in a vacuum. It, you, you can't do that at all because it's, it's so augmented to other parts of your thinking. You can't think about the resurrection without thinking about what you believe about death. There's something about the resurrection that will rarely leave you indifferent. It either is going to push you in or it's going to push you out. Some of us this morning believe in the resurrection deeply, and others of us are somewhat skeptical. Others just think it's kind of absurd. But it rarely leaves you on the fence. And so when you think about the resurrection, you obviously, obviously have to think about death. It also forces you to think about what you believe about truth, at least as it pertained to what Jesus had to say. Is he a reliable source of truth to you? Or is he something really that you can just kind of hold at a distance? And the last thing that the resurrection forces you to contemplate is what you believe about evil. All of us this morning would have to admit that there are many things happening in our world and continue to happen that we have no explanation for. They oftentimes are horrific. They're terrible events that oftentimes leave dead people in, in the wake of them. And so you can't think about the resurrection without at least admitting that to some degree it's going to touch all three of those things, death, truth, and evil. And so this morning I want to start by just having you consider what it is, how, how the resurrection forces us to think about death. This is probably the most obvious one because the statement that we just heard in, in verse 6 says, 
But the angel said to the women, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. One of Christianity's most basic assertions is there's something about you that survives your death. Most of us know that. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 that he put eternity in the hearts of men. I think that's probably the best explanation for all types of speculation in world religions. But one of the basic assertions is that there's a part of you that will not cease to exist when your body dies. And the resurrection pushes you into that in a very, very interesting way because you have to think about that. Now, what's really interesting about recent research here in the United States indicates that somewhere around, the answer to the question in the survey was, do you believe in life after death? And right around 71% of the people in the United States said they did. So this is not a reach when you begin to contemplate that Jesus had a life. There was something about his existence that not only survived the crucifixion and all the horrific treatment that was given to him, but he actually was raised. And so there's 71% of, of the people in the United States believe that there is a life after death, and only 18% believe that there is not. That tells you that the overwhelming majority of people today believe that there is some aspect of this. Now, the Apostle Paul actually wrote that the, the credibility of Christianity hung in the balance of the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, then Christianity as a system of truth needed to be invalidated. It needed to be pushed aside. He, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, he wrote, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So it's virtually impossible to think about the resurrection without thinking to some degree about what you believe about death. Most of us admit that as Christians, we, we believe that people, when they die, they go to a better place. But the majority of Americans believe that. And so there's something that's augmented in that one. The second issue is the issue of truth. When you consider the resurrection, certainly the the, the caliber or the quality of truth that Jesus asserted either was affirmed or was completely denied. And again, in verse 7 of those verses you just heard, it said, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so according to Jesus' own words repeatedly leading up to his crucifixion and burial, he said, this is what's going to happen, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And so that, again, puts kind of a scrutiny in Christianity, a scrutiny about what truth is in general, I think, in some ways, because most of us as Americans, we have a kind of a general speculation about truth where we, we believe that there are truths that apply to some things, but there are truths that are relative as well. But that wasn't one of these issues in the resurrection. Literally, as I said earlier, the legitimacy of Christianity hung in the balance of whether Jesus was really going to be raised from the dead. Now, in his typical fashion, C.S. Lewis writes this in, in, a, in a way that kind of puts you into a corner in regard to this issue. And he 
This is in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing sense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so there's something about the teaching of Jesus, the record of the New Testament, that says you cannot just believe that he was a good man. There's no way you can actually just affirm and kind of apply, and as C.S. Lewis says, patronizing way, that he was actually just a good teacher. He had some good stuff to say. He didn't leave that open to you. Because if that's all that he was, he's led millions and millions of people astray. Now, if you step back and you think of Jesus' public ministry, he, his ministry was characterized by a lot more than just the miracles he did. He oftentimes was shown to be teaching the poor, serving others of all walks of life, the rich and the poor, the tall and the short, the male and the female. All of those classes he just appealed to. But perhaps most significantly, he, he was shown to go after people that were considered to be hopelessly lost. They were people in our culture that you would think would be the outcasts that people had just given up on, even their own families. And it was those, that group that Jesus really spent the majority of his time with and the majority of his energy. Luke's Gospel in, verse, in chapter 15 and verse 1 and 2, it says that the, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near him, this throng of people but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the scribes, they grumbled and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so there was something about his ministry that would have been remarkably accessible. It wasn't, I think, even like many, many types of churches that you go into, and it seems like the pastor, perhaps even some of the staff, they're, they're not approachable. He was amazingly accessible. And they complained about him perpetually that he, he actually gave so much of his time to the poor and to those that were outcast. And so Jesus steps in to history and begins to kind of fill an atrophied system of religion that became mere formalism. And it had actually become a cruel system that marginalized people and put the spotlight on others. And Jesus went out of those spotlights and into the crowd. And either everything he stood for was validated when he rose from the dead or it all went away. You see, there's no option to hold him as just merely a good teacher. So that brings you then to this third and final one, this final statement about evil. And this, this is the one that I kind of want to unpack the most. The third and final thing that I want you to consider is that when you think about the resurrection, you have to think about what you believe about evil itself. According to Tim Keller, this is one of the leading uh, defeater beliefs in the minds of non-Christians. And this issue actually causes problems for many of us that are Christians as well. And it's called the problem of evil. 
if Jesus, if Christianity really is true and Jesus was actually raised from the dead and in order that the world would become a better place, then why are there so many evil things happening? How could it possibly be that all that could be true and all of this still happening? Now, <clears throat> the, the philosopher J.L. Mackey wrote this in his book, The Miracle of Theism, and it's a little bit of a uh, sarcasm in that, in the title. But he, he wrote this, he said, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil, but there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world. The traditional God and power, good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Now, as I said, that argument is a substantial argument in the mind of many non-Christians today. And there's a lot of Christians that are completely intimidated by that argument. In other words, if someone says, how do you explain the fact that the world is the way that it is if Jesus was the one that was given so much power, so much influence, and he's continued to work through his people? How do you explain that? And so many non-Christians hold tight to that, and many Christians run away from that argument. And so I want to take just a few moments and kind of push through how I think that if you take a step back and look at a few things, it starts to, I think, come back into perspective. And the first one is the gospel. You see, the gospel, in one sense, I think for many years, has been presented to us in too narrow of a sense. It sounds something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you see, your perspective on it is all pertaining to you. But it helps if you step back from, from that to perhaps a more global view, and you understand the gospel starts with creation where God actually brought a creation into existence that he intended to change everything. He put man and, a man and a woman in it with amazing faculties, creativity, industry, in order that the world would actually become better with them in it than it would be without them in it. But you also have to think in the same, in the same instant about two chapters later when they're is a fall. And suddenly the man and the woman believe that they can be like God. And there is not only evil that comes into the world, there is a curse that God places on everything that explains a lot about what you've experienced your whole entire life. Because what he did is cause the creation to fight against us instead of for us. In other words, before that, there was a, there was a harmony, there was a, a unity between the created order and who we are and what we were trying to do, but from thereafter, it didn't work with us. And so most of us have lived our entire lives striving for things that we rarely see come into existence, and there's a sense of frustration that we bear because every one of us, when we go into a marriage, know that ours is going to survive. When we start businesses, they're going to be the ones that are profitable, when we interact with others, those friendships are always going to survive. But oftentimes they do not. And so it starts with creation, goes to the fall, but in the very next chapter, in the midst of the fall actually, in chapter 3 and verse 15, God makes a declaration of redemption. And that declaration said that one day all that has been lost in the fall will be made right. Everything that is broken will be redeemed and repaired. And you see, understanding that 
put you in a context in which you're able to say that the progress of God's purpose in doing that is unfolding in time. We're not at its culmination or its apex. There's a process in which you're looking into it. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that there would be evil still in the world, that there would be children that still get sick, that there are people that still, still the relationships will not work. But it, it seems perfectly consistent with the gospel for us to step back and to say it's a progress. There's something that God is doing that's already happening, but it's not yet complete. So understanding the gospel is, is an issue that puts us in perspective. And there's a similar issue in the second point. The nature of Jesus' kingdom is very similar. It's, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it has some consistent points in it. That Throughout his public ministry, Jesus taught that his people, when they trusted him, they'd become agents of influence. They'd become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And since that first century, there has been remarkable changes in the lives of people. If you think of the, during the crucifixion, the 11 apostles that were left after Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself, those 11 men were filled with terror. They were, they, were, they were cowardly in the sense that they deserted Jesus. But after the resurrection, they turned into these amazingly bold men that were willing to stand in, in the face of even those that crucified Jesus. And it initiated something that showed this transformation. It, it, something happened. And when you begin to understand the nature of the kingdom, Jesus' most basic description of it was it starts like this teeny little seed and grows into the biggest tree in the garden. It starts like a little pinch of leaven that can be pushed into a whole, a whole lump and the whole thing is influenced by it. And so the progress of the kingdom, like the whole purpose of redemptive history, is one that's unfolding. And so you have a, you have a consistency there with what Jesus taught in the influence of the church. And so as we stand here in the... It's not quite the dawn of the 21st century, but it's fairly close. As we stand here today, there, there shouldn't be an inconsistency with understanding that there's still a presence of evil in the world. The nature of the gospel tells us that. The nature of Jesus' kingdom and its influence in the world tells us that as well. The third thing that I would have you consider is your perception, go back to Mackey's, Mackey's quote, what is pointless evil to you? You see, all of us have had experiences that at the moment that they happen, they, they seem completely confusing. They seem almost crushing. They, the, the weight of it makes us seem as if we, cannot, we can scarcely take another step. But oftentimes we look back and we're able to see that unspeakable goodness came into our lives through those events. And so... What is pointless evil? You see, I, I, I believe it is actually spectacularly arrogant for any of us to say that if I can look at a situation and I cannot discern a meaning for it, then there is no meaning. If I can't see it, if I can't understand it, if I can't explain it, then there isn't any meaning. Now, in Isaiah 55 and verse 8 and 9, Isaiah wrote the simple statement where God says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts, 
they're higher than your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, they're higher than your ways. They're beyond you finding out. And basically, God was simply saying, you're not going to understand it all. And so the, through the history of the church, there's been this, this a character in, in the lives of Christians that, are, that is able to, to allow them to step back and to, to say by faith, even if these things should happen, I'm, I'm still going to believe. And there's been this fortitude, there's been this, this character that has is, is carried, carried them through remarkable adversity and remarkable difficulty. And so what really is a pointless evil? Now that brings me to this final point. And it's the power of personal freedom. If Christianity really is true, for those of you that are maybe just barely hanging on to a faith that seems to be slipping away from you or you've never really been convinced of it, I, I, I think it's only natural for you to be able to say if if Christianity really is true, shouldn't there be evidences of that in the lives of people who claim to be Christians? Now, I, I want you to think of the Christians that you know, not, not the ones that are duplistic or hold their faith in kind of a hypocritical, distant way, but I, I want you to think for a moment of the Christians you know that take their, their, their faith very seriously. Are they free? When Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, are they free? You see, when I begin to think about those people that I know that are, are serious and they've, they've taken the gospel deep into their heart, there's, there's a reorientation of their life. There's a, a direction that is, is accomplished in their thinking that is entirely different than it was before their conversion. And I think I can tell you, I know hundreds of you, even here in this room, that are free. There's something that has happened that is no longer holding you captive to the thought that if only you can be on that team, if only you can live in that city, if only you can be married, if only you can have children, then you're going to have everything. And suddenly, you're able to hold things in a way that no longer takes you captive. You really are free. As I said, there was a transformation that took place with the apostles that was almost indescribable. How Jesus would take 11 simple men and suddenly they would become the instruments through which a church would be born. A church that is, is there's an attempt to exterminate it both by the Jews and by Rome throughout the first century. But yet within 400 years, the Christian church is dominating the Roman Empire. What happened? You see, I believe that's evidence of freedom. But perhaps the greatest evidence is for us to see that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is what God offers to you. Not in the sense that you're going to walk on water, not in the sense that you're going to raise people from the dead, not in the sense that you are going to be able to create whatever you want in the world, but there's a sense in which you come into harmony with a power that is greater than anything else in the world. Do you know what that is? You see, that's what Easter is about. There's something that we can't think about. You can't, you can't come to a conclusion unless embrace it without really understanding that 
death and truth and evil all have to be considered if Jesus is no longer in the grave. All right, let me take one question today and then we'll be done. How do you explain the, go the global gospels starting with creation and fall to those who do not accept the Bible or, or the biblical creation as truth? That's, that's actually a good question. See, I, I believe that, that there, there are practical elements that, that we all hold in our, in our thinking. You take a, a person who is an atheist, who believes that devoutly that there is no God. But you see, where did the earth come from? How did it get to the complexity that it got? And so, the, where it's at right now, an atheist is a person who is saying there is no transcendent truth, there's no transcendent being that has governed anything. It's all just sheer random cause and effect. And so how did it get here? The evolutionary scheme is simply law, chance, and time will give you a way to explain the way things are today. And increasingly, I think people are willing to consider that to say, is that the best we can do? Is that really an argument that can resolve this for me? In other words, am I going to put that chip on, my, on the board of my mind and consider life that way? Increasingly, I believe people are questioning that because you have to come to some sort of an answer. What do you believe about the, world, the way the world began? And increasingly, I think there are people that are willing to say, all right, we believe that there has to be a design in this. There has to be some sort of an order to this that's transcendent. Why did mathematics work? And therefore, the, 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 there's a credibility about the assertions of Scripture that people can actually adhere to. And so it's, it's not as, as difficult as being able to just say, well, all I have to do is quote a bunch of verses from Scripture. I don't believe that's going to work. But you should be able to reason from Scripture. You should be able to take its claims and articulate them in a, that is accessible, in a way that's accessible to people today. And I believe by doing that, Christians are beginning to make headway, even into large cities, even into places that were bastions of liberalism and bastions of, of atheistic thought. And so there's changes coming. Be patient. Be diligent. Be prepared. All right, I'm going to ask the band to come. We're going to take communion. For those of you that are here with us today, uh, this isn't closed communion. If you're a Christian, I, we hope you, you'll take communion with us. The, the ordinance of communion is simply an element in which that you'll come down and there, there's broken bread and there's a chalice of wine. The bread signifies for us as Christians the broken body of Jesus. The chalice of wine has spilt blood. So if you're a Christian, we'd ask that you would examine yourself and come and profess your faith publicly, that you would come and take communion. If you're not a Christian, we would encourage you not to. Why would you want to proclaim something that isn't true about who you really are? And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask the band to come forward, and we'll, we'll be done. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for an opportunity that we have on a Sunday morning to... To, to really be able to think that there are many things like this throughout Scripture and throughout our lives that we, we really can't think about them without thinking about other things. 
and I, I, I hope we've seen this morning that it's impossible for us to really celebrate the resurrection of Jesus without thinking about what we really believe about death, about whether he at least can be a valid source of truth to us, and certainly about what we believe about evil and how things are the way they are and why. And so, Father, I, I just ask that you would give us a few moments of sobriety in the sense that we could think about these issues and consider just how credible these claims of Scripture really are, just how thorough they are and how they augment themselves to one another in our thinking. And so again, Father, I thank you for those that have come out this morning. I just pray your blessings upon us as we would take communion and we'd finish our worship together. And so to that end, we pray and ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat>